Over the next several Sundays, we're going to go back through and take a look at, at our identity as a local body of believers. And so our, our identity, kind of what we're trying to build in, in the average member and, and every member and frequent attenders here at Ridgecrest is people that are growing in their faith. We think the Bible speaks really clearly that, that once he calls you into salvation, that he is, he's calling you to grow in your faith. That he is, he's gifted you for something. We think that he's gifted you for service. And so we want to see people growing. We want to pe- see people serving. And we want to see people going out, compassionately extending the gospel. And so what, what has started in you, God is calling you to move beyond yourself and to extend the gospel. And so we're going to be really kind of going through and camping on that. And this will flow into our missions month. And so we'll have three or four weeks on the idea of what it is for us to go and to graciously extend the gospel. What it is for us to serve here in our community, and extend the gospel through our service. And so today we're looking at the idea of, of what it is to grow in our faith, and we're going to look at it through kind of an odd, odd way. We're going to look at it through Psalm 19. Now, for whatever reason, the idea of, of spiritual growth seems for so many in our society to be something that's, that's really only to be addressed by, by super-Christians, people that are kind of on the fringes of society that we don't want to really be around, we don't want to really uh, be judged by them, and so we find ways to kind of marginalize those. But, but recognize spiritual maturity, spiritual growth, growing in your faith is something that is a, a, really a requirement and a sweet blessing from God to each and every believer in faith in Jesus Christ. But it's different. It's different than, than other forms of growth. You see, when you're, when you're born, you start off as, as what? A small child, you're not, grown as a, you're not born as a full-grown man, you're not born as a full-grown woman, and, and so growth is this thing that happens naturally to you. In the beginning, you've got a mother or a father that feeds you, and so you begin to notice that, that growth happens rather naturally. Your parents begin to think that growth happens rather exponentially as they measure your clothes against the progress you're making. But over the course of your life, you, you kind of peter out. You stop growing at some point. For some of you, you stopped sooner than others. And so, but, but it's this natural process that you're really not doing a whole lot other than just staying alive, eating, drinking, and getting some modicum of exercise. Spiritual growth is not that way. When God moves in your heart, he calls you salvation, and he, he calls you to the truth. You repent of your sins at that moment. You are a child, a baby in the faith. And too many of us are content to remain as such. Too many of us are, are, are to con- content to remain as such. And we really like the idea that when we were babies, man, our mom's there. And she's like, oh, you're so cute and cuddly. And she's changing our nasty diapers. And she's feeding us and, and cleaning us up all the time and all the time. And there's nothing, like there's no responsibility for us as a baby, right? What is your responsibility if you are a baby? You pee? You, yeah, that too? (laughs) And you eat, and then you disrupt the sleep of everybody around you. But this is kind of it for you. Like, this is it. This is your calling in life to disrupt everybody around you, and passively you grow at the great investment of someone else. Now certainly it is on us to invest ourselves in the lives of those around us. We are to be discipling other believers in faith in Jesus Christ. But it is also on us to grow. It's on us. The reason God gives you his word, the reason he reveals himself to you, is so that you might grow in holiness. 
the work that God has laid before you, the will of God in your life is for your sanctification, that you might grow in holiness. And so today we're going to look at that from this aspect of Psalm 19. Now as you're reading through Psalm 19, and we're going to take it in three or four different measures, recognize that the first thing that the Psalms this talks about, and here it's attributed to David, so the first thing David talks about in 1 through 6, it really kind of falls under this broad heading of, of general or natural revelation that God is, is speaking through creation. And then here in 7 through 11, it really turns and he, he talks about the fact that God is speaking through his word. And so we're going to talk about some of what that means. And then what we see in 12 through 14 is on the basis of the fact that God has spoken through creation, on the basis of the fact that God has spoken through his word, he is calling the believer to respond in a very particular way. And David gives us a, David gives us a model for that. So let's look at the first six verses. David writes and he says, The heavens... Declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy, its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. And so the first thing we observe is that, that God is speaking through creation. Well, the Apostle Paul had something to say about, then, about this in Romans chapter 1. Addressing kind of where humanity is in terms of those who believe and those who disbelieve, this is what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1, verses 19 through 20. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. So it's plain to everyone. Because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. We serve a God who created. You see, the Christian conception of God is, especially in, in, in David's day, it's decidedly different from those around them. It's not that creation crawled out on the back of a turtle, but God invested himself personally in creation. So the Psalms, this, or, or David, he looks, and from his vantage point, he, he, he really wants those reading to understand the degree to which this God goes to communicate something about himself. And so, uh, just like you or I were to walk out in the morning and you're to look up, and on a clear day, maybe you could see some clouds floating along, and so David looks up at the expanse of the sky, and he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. What an amazing testimony. It's not that, that God created and he just said, now here it is, here it's all laid out, but he created and he left his signature upon that which he created. He created something so much more magnificent looking than ourselves, amen? He created the sky above, so when you walk out in the morning and you see the clouds trace over the skies or you see the moon still hanging or you see the sun coming up and screaming over the trees, it is declaring the glory of God. It's declaring his majesty. It's declaring how wonderfully amazing his creation is. It's, it's calling us, it's begging us to ask the question, who then could do such a thing? How did, how did all this happen? How did all this come to be? Who then could do such a thing? So in this we find great commonality. 
We find great commonality with the one who believes that creation is is a feat that occurred in six 24-hour periods. We find great commonality with the one who believes in the day-age theory. We find great commonality in the one who believes in theistic evolution, that God is somehow managing and controlling things and bringing them to be. We find great commonality because at the end of this, we discover what is the point that he's making. He's not arguing in Psalm 19 for a specific course of creation. In Psalm 19, he is calling us to marvel at it. And no matter how you believe God moved to create, the end result is the same in this. He calls you out. He calls you out in the middle of the day. He calls you out in the middle of the night. And he says, look at the sky. It's proclaiming. It's declaring his handiwork and his glory. And this is the amazing thing. The way the psalmist writes this, he's not simply telling us that as you look up, there's one declarative statement and then it's done. Like you walk out in the morning and the skies yell down and say, Matt, I'm declaring the glory of God. And then they're like, don't talk the rest of my life. The, the, the picture that he's getting us here is that forever and always, since the moment of creation, God has not ceased to communicate through that which he has created. His creation is communicating to us. His creation is, what we see in verse 2, is day-to-day pouring out speech and night-to-night revealing knowledge. What a great and true statement. That as we look, as, as we even give ourselves to the study of nature, we find that God is continually, continuously pouring out speech. That in, in both those places like Greenville, Texas, where a high percentage of people have heard the gospel communicated. And in those places, in those countries where millions upon millions of people have yet to hear the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, God continues to speak. His voice continues to go forth in his creation. And he is calling upon you and I to go and to complete that story. So that we might find somebody marveling at creation and we might walk up to them and say, that which you worshipped in ignorance, let me inform you. That which you looked up and wondered, what is this? Let me tell you the end of the story. This God is a communicative God. He is declaring through his handiwork. He's declaring through the skies. Now look at the expanse of his communication. He says, day to day, day, it pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. It's endless. It is ongoing. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. God is communicating over boundaries, over countries, over fences, over walls, He's communicating past the great firewall of China that doesn't let Google in. Like he's, he's, he's managed to make it over this interesting thing that when the church was removed from China, when the Christian church and, and Christians were largely kicked out, the church took off like wildfire. The Christian church in China is growing at a rate much beyond that of the population growth, whereas in our own country where we, we just kind of take it as a given that most people have heard the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, in this country, our population is growing at a much greater rate than our people coming to faith. God, it seems, is not without a cosmic sense of humor. 
that we who are entrusted much, we who are given much liberty and much freedom, chose not to avail ourselves of it because we didn't want to inconvenience those we encounter. But this God continued to faithfully communicate, to reveal himself in nature, to reveal himself to those who had not yet heard. Look how next David describes him. David turns to this image of the sun in the second half of verse 4. He says, in them he has set a tent for the sun. Now from, from David's, David's vantage point, he's not seeking to write some type of scientific textbook where he's talking about the movement of the sun and, and <clears throat> in response to kind of what that looks like for man. But from his vantage point, he walks out and he sees the sun and it starts on one side and comes all the way over and it ends on the other side. And so from David's vantage point, as he's seeking to write this in poetry and poetic form, it, 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 to him it, it appears to be that the, tent, that the tent for the sun is the sky, that the sun goes in there. Look how he describes it. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. This is a beautiful image. Night comes around the bridegroom walks into his chamber. He's got his bride there, and, and they do what a, what a bride and a bridegroom do. And then the next morning, he comes out beaming with joy, beaming with elation. And this is the same way. This image, this bedroom imagery, is the same way that David uses to describe the sun. This sun, coincidentally, that is only a subset of God's creative endeavor. That's what he's trying to get at here. When, when people of David's day would look out and they would describe the most glorious, most amazing thing that they could find, there were cultures around the Israelites that chose to worship the sun, and they thought the sun was a tremendous warrior. They thought the sun was the one that upholded justice, the one that brought righteousness to be to, with the people. What does David say? He says, this, this one you, who you erroneously worship, he is only a subset of the creative endeavor of my God. The sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heaven and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The way that David lays this out for us is the sun traverses the sky as it moves all the way across from rising to setting. It's got one course and one message, and it's communicating the glory of God to all that behold it. All that wonder what, what holds it in this, in this place. All that, that ask the question, why is it at this perfect distance from the earth? All that, that begin to wonder, how are these things working and, and how did these things get to be so? David lets us know that all these things exist for one purpose and one purpose only. To glorify God in all things. We would seem that we'd seem to recognize that God's desire is for us to continue to grow. God's desire is, is, is that humanity would come to know him, and he is communicating even in our silence, even in our, our laziness, even in our apathy, even in our complete disregard for his instruction. God continues to communicate. But the interesting thing is, as this psalm just looks at it, He's, he's, he's asking the question and in, in, in really writing in poetic form the different ways God has communicated. And what we find is that once he has communicated through creation, but he's also communicated through the written word. 
through his direct or specific communication, specific revelation to humanity. Look at 7 through 11. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much more than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Now this is, 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 is something that we're more accustomed to dis- discussing and, and looking at from a New Testament concept. And so for many of you, when you think in terms of specific revelation, what God's word is seeking to do, 2 Timothy 3.16 is the verse that comes to mind for you. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This idea that God has given us, entrusted to us, his word. And his word is seeking to communicate something very specific about him. His word is telling us something about him, and on the basis of that knowledge is calling us to a specific course of action. His word is communicating to us. And as you go through and, and, you, and you read here in 7 through 11, there's a tendency for us to disconnect. And so you read and you say, the law of the Lord is perfect, and you're like, oh man, I really don't want to talk about the law. But something we've got to make sure that we completely recognize is that in the mind of God, who's the ultimate author of all scripture, there is no discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are all this overarching meta-narrative, this story that ultimately leads to Jesus and salvation in him. So the law finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And so for God, as the ultimate author of scripture, as he inspired David, the Psalms is to write these things, he has within the mind of God the ultimate conclusion of all these things, finding their perfection and their end in Jesus. We recognize that the law had inadequacies, and we'll discuss those in a moment. But look at all the different ways that God goes through and describes his word to the Israelites, describes his word to us. He says, it is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure, the fear of it is clean, it is true, And that there's something in us that must desire it more than those things we observe around us. Let's look at the first one. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. He is not simply talking about the Decalogue. He's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. As if to say that that these are perfect, that these are the vehicle that God will use to right humanity. He's talking in a more abstract sense about all of the written word of God and that's why you see it over and over again described using different things the precepts the testimony the rules he's pointing at the totality of the written evidence of God all that is contained within scripture this is why Paul can say all scripture is breathed out by God because he finds it not to be discontinuous between the old testament and the new testament he finds this great overarching stream where God is connecting one to another look what he says here The law of the Lord is perfect. God's communication in nature is tremendous. It it 
poses a question to the mind of humanity. Where did this all come from? How did we all get here? And we find people come down on different sides of that, and so some of us come down on the side and they say, look, I don't believe in God, and so they seek to rationalize it. They seek to use scientific evidence to describe a way that all these things could have happened at all the exact times and all the exact ways to get us here. And then others trusting in God believe that a creator God was behind all of it, that he is the one perfectly maintaining everything in balance, everything bringing them to their ultimate conclusion. Look what he says here. Moving away from natural revelation to specific revelation. Although those things in nature might reveal God, they cannot lead us to a true and intimate understanding. All they're created to do is prompt a question in our minds. How did I get here? Where did all this come from? And so he turns and he says, the law of the Lord is perfect for reviving the soul. We recognize that, as Paul described, it was his encounter with the law that led him to understand his lostness. So you go your whole life and and nobody ever tells you that that such and such behavior is wrong and then suddenly you read on on a placard that it says this behavior is incorrect, this behavior is wrong. You say, look, I never knew. I never knew I was transgressing the law. I've got a, a six-year-old at home, and, and he's decided that he wants to be a state trooper, and so he is the lethal enforcer of all things uh, speed limit-wise. He's the lethal enforcer of all uh, driving codes, and so uh, please don't ever, ever, ever let him know there are any more rules or regulations to be known other than please slow down and full stop. But before he really understood any of these things, the, the 55 was a speed limit and not 5-5, right? Dad, you can go 5-5. I'm really not sure what that is. I'm going to go 55. But before he understood these things, he's just driving along and he has no real concept of these things. But when he recognized that there is a law forbidding going faster than these things, in his mind it solidified. This understanding that to go faster than this was to transgress the law. It's to transgress the law. And then, and then further, he says, Dad, what happens if, if a police officer comes up behind you and he finds you going 70 in a 5-5 zone? I say, Dad prays for mercy. I say, he pulls me over and he can write me a ticket. He said, what's that ticket designed to do? I said, one, to raise money. But two, to try and encourage Dad not to speed anymore. To try and encourage dad not to speed anymore. What we find is that God's law functions in so much more of a superior way. We come into contrast with his law. The way that we're living, the way that we're treating our spouse, the way we're treating our children, the way we're treating people around us. And we find out that when Jesus summarizes the law, he says, love God and love people. Love God and love people. So we take that to heart and we recognize when we transgress that, when we don't value people that oppose us, when we vilify and demonize people who who hold opposing views to ourselves, then we're not embracing the law. We're not embracing God's heart, which is revealed in the law. We're transgressing it. And we recognize that that, that this God who, who loved us, this God who sent his son to die for us, calls us to live in accordance with his written word revealed to us. We love God. We love people. And it breaks us. 
Maybe not the moment we transgress. But when we're reading his word, when we're studying his word, and we recognize, man, my life is radically out of kilter with the word of God. So for the Christian, we're reading his word, and his spirit is testifying to you. And so whether you're reading in Psalms or Revelation, his spirit is communicating to you the message of the text and applying it to your heart. And God is saying, Valerie, God is saying, Matt, God is saying, Ben, God is saying, Chase, your life is not in accordance with how I would have you to live. And this is what a creator God does. This is what this loving God does. He calls us back to conformity. He calls us back into this relationship with himself. And it has this vivifying, this effect to make us alive. For the lost person who hears the word of God. And they recognize that there is a holy God who demands that we be righteous and holy. And they come up against his word and they say, I cannot meet this. I cannot satisfy this. God's communication to them, God's communication to you, if this is where you are, is of course you can. This is why I sent my son, that he might be your righteousness. That he might suffer and die for your sinfulness, and that you might go on to live in him in fullness of life. Find that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Look at all the other effects of the law. He tells us that it it makes wise the simple. It makes wise the simple. No, he's not talking about the simpleton. He's not talking about the fool. He's talking, in this sense, about the one who just has no training. The one who has no training, the one who has not been discipled, the one who has not grown, when he comes into contact with the word of God, he finds himself stirring and being grown. He finds himself being prompted and being goaded into full, mature faith in Jesus Christ. It rejoices the heart. It causes gladness in us. God's word is not designed to produce sorrow in the heart of the believer. God's word is not this thing that we read it and we just weep because we're so worthless. We read God's word. It reveals his heart. It reveals the righteousness of Jesus that is yours by faith through Jesus Christ. And we are rejoicing in that. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It enlightens the eyes. In a real sense, it's this, this trip into a spiritual ophthalmologist who, who outfits us, who, who di- designates and diagnoses our spiritual blindness. And when his word comes in, it provides us with the ability to see and to see clearly. It enlightens the eyes. Now look at verse 9. This is interesting, and this, this really isn't a direct reflection on his word, but it is a reflection upon how we respond to his word. You see, there is no separation between God and his word. We know him by his word. And our response to him and our response to his word must be the same thing. They've got to be the same thing. It's as if I had, uh, if you just really liked me for whatever reason, but I sent you a note and you just said, I just despise these notes. I just think they're the worst thing ever. And so you're just really tearing me down and, and what I write, my, my writing is me being manifest to you. In the very same way that God's writing manifests himself to us, we know God, not because we've met him personally as we rode on the subway. 
Not because you commuted with him from Rockwall into Greenville. But you know God through his word. It's the way that God has chosen to intimately reveal himself to humanity. Jesus was the word made flesh. And it is the writing contained in scripture whereby we know him and whereby we know God the Father. And so he says that the one who encounters the word should have this sense of reverential fear and respect of God. It produces in us a right response, a right feeling towards God. Now look at this in verse 10. Now this, i got to be honest, is one of those things that I really, I don't know if I'd say struggled with, but I really, like I read it, and poetry is so common to hyperbole. It's so common to just kind of, of, of really beautiful and ornate language and, and hyperbole. And so I read it, and I said, okay, I've got to desire it uh, more than fine gold, and I've got to desire it more than honey. I've never really held very much gold, and I could certainly do without any more honey in my life. But when you begin to get it, what David's trying to communicate, David <clears throat> looks around at his, at his society. And so he, he finds things that people value. And the highest value that people set on precious metals was, was found in gold in David's day. And so he said gold. And then he looked at, at how do we make food more appetizing? How do we add sweetener to it? We use honey. And so he chose two things from his day that everyone would understand. And so in our day, it, it, it becomes more difficult because we just have so much stuff, right? And so for some of us, the application to this would be that he, his word is to be much more desired than vacation, than retirement, than our spouse, than our free time, than our paid off home, than our health, then our citizenship, whatever thing you find in your life that you highly praise and highly value, the way that he writes this, he and he alone is to be desired so much more. But it's curious, is it not, that he would come in and say that we are to desire the law more than, than our spouse, the law, more than all these other things. And we might say, that these are things that God gave to me. It only makes sense when we really recognize that there is no separation between his word, which reveals him to us and himself. The reason that we are to desire them more than gold, more than honey, more than our sweet honey, more than the gold she wears. The reason is because it is linked to our affections for God. We cannot, we cannot love those things around God more than Him. This is what He's calling us to. This is what He would, would have us understand. This is how He would have us move through this. They're to be desired more than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey. Now Psalm 1 and 2, Psalm 1 and verse 2, tells us this. Speaking of the righteous man, it says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
And what we read again in Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. What we begin to find, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that we should be a people who devour his word. In devouring the word of God, in feasting upon the word of God, he prompts your heart to desire more. And this is one of the reasons we've, we've tried to purposely set up and encounter you with the word as much as possible because we believe more than anything that, that it is not programs that will make you want to grow in holiness. It's God's word being richly applied to your lives. The whole point for putting together uh, the life groups isn't just so that we could get smaller groups of you together and thereby brainwash you. If that was possible, we would do that too. Some of you find that funny, others are offended. I'll meet some of you for lunch, others meetings later in the week. We recognize that that God's word is meant to be consumed, it's meant to be devoured, and we think that this happens best in groups where people can get together and say, this is how I am growing in the word. This is, this is how he is applying it to my heart. These are the things he is calling me to surrender. These are the ways he is calling me to walk this out. And why in groups? Because we recognize that we are so prone to rationalizing. We're, we're so prone to seeing ourselves, many of us, in a better light than we actually should do. And so... It, in terms of, of, of church attendance, in terms of, of being active and being involved, when we're completely anonymous, it's great. People say, hey, do you go to church, man? Yeah, I go to the church down the way. What's it called? Well, you know the one. No, I don't know the one. Which one? There's like a bajillion of them in Greenville. You're going to have to be more specific. Well, when is the last time you were in church? Oh, you know, you know the date. No, friend, you're attributing way too many things to me. Your growth can never be as great alone as it could be corporately. One of the things we found as we studied through Ephesians is that God had entrusted to the church the communication of the gospel. The church, in that sense, is this universal understanding of all believers everywhere. We get that, okay? And we recognize that churches fight and they fuss and they they pull up apart each other at the, stream, uh, at the seams, and this is why so many of us are bald or going that way. I'm not bald or going that way. But it's in the local church, with people we don't like, with people we can't stand, with people whose personalities who just drive us crazy, that God is to be glorified. And it's in this local church that he, he calls us into this cauldron of life and calls us to walk out with other people who we disagree with. The particulars of what it is to be sanctified, the particulars of what it is to grow in holiness, that they might hold us accountable and that we might be so gracious to hold them accountable. This is the true blessing of a local church, that we might continue to grow in faith together. But man, i got to be honest, we find ourselves in a day when people are just completely indifferent 
talked to a friend of mine this week who's been in active ministry for over 40 years. And uh, we're just talking about church stuff. It's what pastors do because none of us have very exciting uh, pastimes. And so we're talking about church stuff, and he says, you know, I would hate to be a pastor growing up today. I said, well, that's, that's super encouraging. Thanks so much for that. <laughs> he said, yeah, you know, in my day, and I'll be like, well, you're, you're pastoring still today. But he said, you know, in my day, there was a sense of, of loyalty. There was a sense of, of, he said, I don't know if it was social pressure, and, and that's not a good thing. But there was a sense of loyalty where people would just bond together and they would do life and they would center their lives around the church and the people they went to church with and the people they, they fellowshiped with. He said, you know, I just don't see that today. People will leave over, over any number of reasons. Somebody didn't greet them. Somebody greeted them too warmly. He said, look, church can only, most churches, and this is, you'll find this to be true, have a better sense of health when pastors stay with them for a long time. Because you don't see constant change and, and fold over. But churches and church members also will do better when they invest in a church over the long haul. You've got to allow a church to fail you to really appreciate what it is to stick it out. When I first came to Ridgecrest, I began to really try and figure out what the, what the past had been like and, and how some things had gone. And, and this is, like, if you're a guest for the first time today, we're a bunch of messed up people. I'm really sorry. <laughs> but I began to talk to a number of people and I said, look, like, I'm watching the roles of this church and, and Bob Hamilton's here and this thing is going off like a rocket. I mean, it's just climbing and climbing. And then y'all hit a serious plateau and it just fell off a cliff face. And so people, people assign blame to different folks, and there was a pastor here that, that some of you love, and you thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread, and others of you wanted to slice him up like bread. And, 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 and both groups really have a hard time getting along. And that's, that's super unfortunate. Churches, because a whole, we're going to fail you. And that's not our intention, that's not our desire. We don't want to marginalize anybody. Our desire is that we could all grow, be one big happy family, moving together in unison and being sanctified together. But I think probably one of the difficulties in sanctification is, is taking off our rough edges. And one of the ways our rough edges come off is by rubbing against one another and just <laughs> being jerks to each other, unfortunately. But there's so many people I talk to, and I said, well, look, I look around, why in the world did you stay? Like, I don't know, it's like people are getting free cars to leave or something. They're leaving in record numbers. Why in the world did you stay? He said, I stayed because I recognize the importance that if I were to leave, that people would look to me as an excuse for not staying. Some of the most faithful people will endure tremendous difficulty and come out the other side, not because they're too stubborn to leave, but because they're seeking to be faithful to God. One of the things we see here is that man, there are problems in our own lives. We don't read the Bible like we should. 
We don't love God like we should. We're not nearly as gracious to those around us as we should be. But we come through this and we recognize that, man, the love of God remains steadfast in you, you obstinate jerk, and in you, you sacrificing soul. It's just this tremendous blessing. And so David comes through this, and he comes through this discussion of of how these things work. In verse 11, he says, they have warned him, they have kept him. And then he begins to relate, he begins to look at these things. And so look what he says in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Many of us, myself included, I've got issues I don't even know how to articulate. Many of you could articulate them rather well. But we've all got something in us that God has not yet revealed to us that we struggle with. We're blind to it. And so what David's cry in this is, is that his inability to discover the depths of his depravity. Did you catch that? His inability to discover the depths of his depravity. His inability to discover those hidden things in his heart, his pride, his blind spots. We all have them. One of the gracious, one of the most gracious things we can do is to go to our brothers and sisters in love, not out of some sense of being a spiritual nitpicker, but in love and point out the blind spots in our brothers and sisters, not so that we'd make them feel lower, but so that God might be able to continue to sanctify them and move in their hearts. Look at his cry. It says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. His desire is not that God would just look at him and be like, it's okay, like he doesn't know about these things, so I'm just going to let these slide. But his declaration is an entreaty before God. Effectively, God, reveal those things in my heart that are hidden. Why? So that I might be clean. So he's calling out for the sins of omission. In verse 13, he's, he's looking full bore at those sins of commission. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. And let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David recognizes the allure of great transgressions. He recognizes the temptation to give ourselves to wanton sin. There are so many things that compete not just for our allegiance, they compete for our attention, they compete for our affection, that they compete for the first place in our lives. And a great prayer is to say, God, my desire is to, to continue to grow in you, to grow in holiness. And so God, for this, I'm asking that you would keep me far from presumptuous sin. Not just those things that I'm able to slip into, but those things which I would desire more than you. Those things that that I would be tempted to want to see the quick return on instead of worshiping you. God, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins, and then I shall be blameless. I want us to look at the totality of what he says here in verse 14. David has taken time and he's looked at the way God has been described in nature. 
looks up at the sky, he sees its expanse, he recognizes that it is declaring the handiwork, the glory of God. He looks at his word and he's looking at all the positive effects that it brings in his life as he studies it, as he applies it to himself. And still at the end of this, it's a cry for mercy, it's a cry for the empowerment of God. It should be our cry. It says, let the words of my mouth Let those things that I say and the meditations of my heart, those things that I ponder deeply, those things that are at the very center of who I am, my fears, my joys, my hopes, let all of these things be acceptable in your sight. The only hope we have for growing in faith together is if we put God who's revealed himself in nature, God who has revealed himself through his word at the center of everything we do. That his word would be a rubric for our lives. That his word, as we lay our lives upon it, it would be the one evaluating us as we move forward. And our prayer in the midst of this is that he would be bringing glory to himself through our words, that he would be bringing glory to himself through our hearts. And this is why we can trust and rest in these things. Look how God is finally described there in the last part of verse 14. The God we pray to, the God who we ask to help us get along with others, the God who we ask to produce these things in our life, he is my rock and my redeemer. It is to our rock and our redeemer that we entrust our spiritual growth. It is to our rock and our redeemer that we entrust this body of believers and we seek to grow in faithfulness together. Would you join me as we pray to God and ask his blessings upon us as we ask that he would continue to grow in our hearts, a desire to grow in intimacy and knowledge of him. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its sure promise to us. God, I thank you for Psalm 19, that David poured out his heart before you. God, that his desire was intimacy with you. God, that he saw your creation crying out for that. God, that he saw your word crying out and inviting him into that. God, as those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, that we recognize that that the law weakened by man what it was unable to do that Jesus fully accomplished in his righteousness. Establishing us a way to come to know you apart from the law in his fulfillment of it. So God, we're thankful for that. I pray that we would constantly trust in that. And Father, too, we pray for the ones who have yet to surrender to yield their lives to you. That you continue to stir in their hearts God, that you would awaken them to your invisible attributes and creation. And God, you would instill in them a desire to read, to study your word. And by reading and studying your word and seeing the positive testimony of Jesus Christ and lives transformed by those around them, that they would surrender themselves to you and that they would come to declare your son is Savior and King. And God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.